Today I'm going to continue with the End of Faith Sessions, Chapter 2. Chapter 2. The Nature of Belief It is often argued that religious beliefs are somehow distinct from other claims to knowledge about the world. There is no doubt that we treat them differently, particularly in the degree to which we demand in ordinary discourse that people justify their beliefs. But this does not indicate that religious beliefs are special in any important sense. What do we mean when we say that a person believes a given proposition about the world? As with all questions about familiar mental events, we must be careful that the familiarity of our terms does not lead us astray. The fact that we have one word for belief does not guarantee that believing is itself a unitary phenomenon. An analogy can be drawn to the case of memory. While people commonly refer to their failures of, quote, memory, Decades of experiment have shown that human memory comes in many forms. Not only are our long-term and short-term memories the products of distinct and dissimilar neural circuits, they have themselves been divided into multiple subsystems. To speak simply of memory, therefore, is now rather like speaking of experience. Clearly, we must be more precise about what our mental terms mean before we attempt to understand them at the level of the brain. Even dogs and cats insofar as they form associations between people, places, and events, can be said to believe many things about the world. But this is not the sort of believing we are after. When we talk about the beliefs to which people consciously subscribe, the house is infested with termites, tofu is not a dessert, Muhammad ascended to heaven on a winged horse, we are talking about beliefs that are communicated and acquired linguistically. Believing a given proposition is a matter of believing that it faithfully represents some state of the world. And this fact yields some immediate insights into the standards by which our beliefs should function. In particular, it reveals why we cannot help but value evidence and demand that propositions about the world logically cohere. These constraints apply equally to matters of religion. Freedom of belief, in anything but the legal sense, is a myth. We will see that we are no more free to believe whatever we want about God than we are free to adopt unjustified beliefs about science or history, or free to mean whatever we want when using words like poison or north or zero. Anyone who would lay claim to such entitlements should not be surprised when the rest of us stop listening to him. Beliefs as Principles of Action The human brain is a prolific generator of beliefs about the world. In fact, the very humanness of any brain consists largely in its capacity to evaluate new statements of propositional truth in light of innumerable others that it already accepts. By recourse to intuitions of truth and falsity, logical necessity and contradiction, human beings are able to knit together private visions of the world that largely cohere. What neural events underlie this process? What must a brain do in order to believe that a given statement is true or false? We currently have no idea. Language processing must play a role, of course, but the challenge will be to discover how the brain brings the products of perception, memory, and reasoning to bear on individual propositions and magically transforms them into the very substance of our living. It was probably the capacity for movement enjoyed by certain primitive organisms that drove the evolution of our sensory and cognitive faculties. This follows from the fact that if no creature could do anything with the information it acquired from the world, Nature could not have selected for improvements in the physical structures that gather, store, and process such information. Even a sense as primitive as vision, therefore, seems predicated on the existence of a motor system. If you cannot catch food, avoid becoming food yourself, or wander off a cliff, 
there doesn't seem to be much reason to see the world in the first place. And certainly refinements in vision, of the sort found everywhere in the animal kingdom, would never have come about at all. For this reason, it seems uncontroversial to say that all higher-order cognitive states, of which beliefs are an example, are in some way an outgrowth of our capacity for action. In adaptive terms, belief has been extraordinarily useful. It is, after all, by believing various propositions about the world that we predict events and consider the likely consequences of our actions. Beliefs are principles of action. Whatever they may be at the level of the brain, they are processes by which our understanding and misunderstanding of the world is represented and made available to guide our behavior. The power that belief has over our emotional lives appears to be total. For every emotion that you are capable of feeling, there is surely a belief that could invoke it in a matter of moments. Consider the following proposition. Your daughter is being slowly tortured in an English jail. What is it that stands between you and the absolute panic that such a proposition would loose in the mind and body of a person who believed it? Perhaps you don't have a daughter, or you know her to be safely at home, or you believe that English jailers are renowned for their congeniality. Whatever the reason, the door to belief has not yet swung upon its hinges. The link between belief and behavior raises the stakes considerably. Some propositions are so dangerous that it may even be ethical to kill people for believing them. Now, as an aside, that is, I think, without question, the most controversial sentence I have ever written. Needlessly so, if you actually make any effort to understand it in context. But this won't surprise you, and as many of you know, has been lifted out of its context and used to paint me as a total maniac who wants to kill people for thought crimes. So let me start this paragraph again. Back to the text. The link between belief and behavior raises the stakes considerably. Some propositions are so dangerous that it may even be ethical to kill people for believing them. This may seem an extraordinary claim, but it merely enunciates an ordinary fact about the world in which we live. Certain beliefs place their adherents beyond reach of every peaceful means of persuasion, while inspiring them to commit acts of extraordinary violence against others. There is, in fact, no talking to some people. If they cannot be captured, and they often cannot, otherwise tolerant people may be justified in killing them in self-defense. This is what the United States attempted in Afghanistan, and is what we and other Western powers are bound to attempt at even greater cost to ourselves and to innocents abroad elsewhere in the Muslim world. We will continue to spill blood in what is, at bottom, a war of ideas. Let me just highlight a few things that appeared in that paragraph, which many people don't notice. I am talking about the link between belief and action. I'm talking about beliefs as principles of behavior. Okay, it should go without saying that I'm talking about beliefs that are behaviorally effective, therefore. I'm talking about the proximate cause of things like suicidal terrorism. I'm talking about beliefs that place people, quote, beyond every peaceful means of persuasion while inspiring them to commit acts of extraordinary violence against others. So I was never talking about killing people merely for what they think. And here I'll, I'll go to my website where I responded to some of the controversy that that sentence provoked, because again, I think this is important. And here's part of what I say there. When one asks why it would be ethical to drop a bomb on Ayman al-Zawahiri, the current leader of al-Qaeda, the answer cannot be 
because he killed so many people in the past. To my knowledge, the man hasn't killed anyone personally. However, he is likely to get a lot of innocent people killed for what he and his followers believe about jihad, martyrdom, the ascendancy of Islam, etc. A willingness to take preventative action against a dangerous enemy is compatible with being against the death penalty, which I am. Whenever we can capture and imprison jihadists, we should. But in many cases, this is either impossible or too risky. So let's linger on this point for a second. If you imagine dropping a bomb on al-Zawahiri or al-Baghdadi, what would justify that? Again, I don't know that these guys have personally killed anyone or will ever kill anyone, but they are part of a machinery that is grinding up innocent lives. And this machinery is built on belief, belief that is effective, belief that is the proximate cause of action. If you know someone is disposed to act on his beliefs, his beliefs become continuous with the action that you would be justified in preventing in a case of self-defense, for instance. You don't have to wait to be killed in order to defend yourself. And when you ask why it would be ethical to kill someone who's in a leadership and propagandistic role in an organization like ISIS or al-Qaeda, where they themselves don't kill anyone necessarily, they simply tell people to do it, it has a lot to do with the contents of their minds. All Ayman al-Zawahiri and al-Baghdadi do, as far as I know, is talk. And if we could kill them, we should absolutely do it. And the interesting ethical question is why? And I'm getting at some part of that question in this statement about belief as a proximate cause of action. If you're going to conjure some person who believes crazy things that have no behavioral implication, they're never going to harm anyone or cause anyone else to harm anyone on the basis of their beliefs, well, then it doesn't matter what they believe. That is precisely the case where beliefs don't matter. And I would never have thought, much less suggested, that those people should be killed for believing in Jesus, say, or believing that Muhammad is the the final prophet of the God of Abraham. But what's interesting about belief and consequential is that in most cases, insofar as something is really believed, it shows up behaviorally. It shows up in the kinds of public policies people want to fight for. That's the whole point of this book. And the boundary between a war of ideas and a real war is not always easy to find. As I say a lot, We have a choice between conversation and violence. We live in perpetual choice between conversation and violence. And that's why it's so important to be able to reason about everything, talk about everything, put everything on the table to be pressure tested against new facts and new arguments. And if you're not willing to do that, you you live in perpetual invitation to violence or threaten others with it. Dogmatism is a refusal to reason with other people. And when that refusal becomes highly consequential, when lives depend on it, people are going to go hands on your body. If there is no talking to you, what are other people going to do with you 
if you are standing in the way of what life-saving medical research getting out of a, a burning building surely you remember the case of the saudi girls school where all those poor girls burned alive because the religious police wouldn't let them out of a burning building because they were not appropriately veiled you had the fathers of some of those girls standing at the gates being cowed by the religious police what should those fathers have done the possibility of violence necessary violence in that case starts the moment the conversation ends the moment there is nothing left to say the moment you're in the presence of someone who will not listen to reason and your daughter is burning up in a fire the beliefs that we should care about are the beliefs that suddenly spring into life in this way as shocking impediments to basic human decency and a wide open path to well-being so that has been a source of really extraordinary controversy but for obvious reasons it is excised from its context a fairly shocking sentence it's a good sentence it makes for an interesting paragraph and if you are at all an honest reader you will understand what the paragraph says but like many provocative sentences it has been a gift to malicious and dishonest critics back to the text the necessity for logical coherence the first thing to notice about beliefs is that they must suffer the company of their neighbors beliefs are both logically and semantically related each constrains and is in turn constrained by many others a belief like the boeing 747 is the world's best airplane logically entails many other beliefs that are both more basic e.g. airplanes exist and more derivative e.g. 747s are better than 757s the belief that some men are husbands demands that the proposition some women are wives also be endorsed because the very terms husband and wife mutually define one another i'm pleased to know that that example seems anachronistic now given that you can have two husbands in a marriage but hopefully you still understand the point i was making back to the text in fact logical and semantic constraints appear to be two sides of the same coin because our need to understand what words mean in each new context requires that our beliefs be free from contradiction at least locally if i am to mean the same thing by the word mother from one instance to the next i cannot both believe my mother was born in rome and believe my mother was born in nevada even if my mother were born on an airplane flying at supersonic speeds these propositions cannot both be true there are tricks to be played here perhaps there's a town called rome somewhere in the state of nevada or perhaps mother means biological mother in one sentence and adoptive mother in another but to know what a belief is about i must know what my words mean to know what my words mean my beliefs must be generally consistent there's just no escaping the fact that there's a tight relationship between the words we use the type of thoughts we can think and what we can believe to be true about the world and behavioral constraints are just as pressing when going to a friend's home for dinner i cannot both believe that he lives north of main street and south of main street and then act on the basis of what i believe a normal degree of psychological and bodily integration precludes my being motivated to head in two opposing directions at once personal identity itself requires such consistency unless a person's beliefs are highly coherent 
he will have as many identities as there are mutually incompatible sets of beliefs careening around his brain. If you doubt this, just try to imagine the subjectivity of a man who believes that he spent the entire day in bed with the flu, but also played a round of golf, that his name is Jim, and that his name is Tom, that he has a young son, and that he is childless. Multiply these incompatible beliefs indefinitely, and any sense that their owner is a single subject entirely disappears. There's a degree of logical inconsistency that is incompatible with our notion of personhood. So it seems that the value we put on logical consistency is neither misplaced nor mysterious. In order for my speech to be intelligible to others, and indeed to myself, my beliefs about the world must largely cohere. In order for my behavior to be informed by what I believe, I must believe things that admit of behavior that is at minimum possible. Certain logical relations, after all, seem etched into the very structure of our world. The telephone rings. Either it is my brother on the line or it isn't. I may believe one proposition or the other, or I may believe that I do not know, but under no circumstances is it acceptable for me to believe both. Departures from normativity, in particular with respect to the rules of inference that lead us to construct new beliefs on the basis of old ones, have been the subject of much research and much debate. Whatever construal of these matters one adopts, no one believes that human beings are perfect engines of coherence. Our inevitable failures of rationality can take many forms ranging from mere logical inconsistencies to radical discontinuities in subjectivity itself. Most of the literature on self-deception, for instance, suggests that a person can tacitly believe one proposition while successfully convincing himself of its antithesis. For example, my wife is having an affair, my wife is faithful. Though considerable controversy still surrounds the question of how or whether such cognitive contortions actually occur. Other failures of psychological integration, ranging from split-brain patients to cases of, quote, multiple personality, are at least partially explicable in terms of areas of belief processing in the brain that have become structurally and or functionally partitioned from one another. And here's a section that relates an experience that I still find just incredible. The section is called The American Embassy. A case in point. While traveling in France, my fiancé and I experienced a bizarre partitioning of our beliefs about the American embassy in Paris. Belief System 1. As the events of September 11th still cast a shadow over the world, we had decided to avoid obvious terrorist targets while traveling. First on our list of such places was the American embassy in Paris. Paris is home to the largest Muslim population in the Western world, and this embassy had already been the target of a foiled suicide plot. The American embassy would have been the last place we would have willingly visited while in France. Belief System 2. Prior to our arrival in Paris, we had difficulty finding a hotel room. Every hotel we checked was full, except for one on the right bank, which had abundant vacancies. The woman at reservations even offered us a complimentary upgrade to a suite. She also gave us a choice of view. We could face the inner courtyard or outward overlooking the American embassy. Which view would you choose, I asked. Oh, the view of the embassy, she replied. It's much more peaceful. I envisioned a large embassy garden. Great, I said. We'll take it. The next day we arrived at the hotel and found we had been given a room with a courtyard view. Both my fiancé and I were disappointed. We had, after all, been promised a view of the American embassy. We called a friend living in Paris to inform her of our whereabouts. Our friend, who is wise in the ways of the world, had this to say. That hotel is directly next to the American embassy. That's why they're offering you an upgrade. Have you guys lost your minds? Do you know what day it is? It's the 4th of July. 
The appearance of this degree of inconsistency in our lives was astounding. We had spent the better part of the day simultaneously trying to avoid and gain proximity to the very same point in space. Realizing this, we could scarcely have been more surprised had we both grown antlers. But what seems psychologically so mysterious may be quite trivial in neurological terms. It appears that the phrase, American Embassy, spoken in two different contexts, merely activated distinct networks of association within our brains. Consequently, the phrase had acquired two distinct meanings. In the first case, it signified a prime terrorist target. In the second, it promised a desirable view from a hotel window. The significance of the phrase in the world, however, is single and indivisible, since only one building answers to this name in Paris. The communication between these networks of neurons appeared to be negligible. Our brains were effectively partitioned. The flimsiness of this partition was revealed by just how easily it came down. All it took for me to unify my fiancé's outlook on this subject was to turn to her, she who was still silently coveting a view of the American embassy, and say with obvious alarm, This hotel is ten feet from the American embassy. The partition came down, and she was as flabbergasted as I was. And yet the psychologically irreconcilable facts are these. On the day in question, never was there a time when we would have willingly placed ourselves near the American embassy, and never was there a time when we were not eager to move to a room with a view of it. I don't know if there's any more to say to extract meaning from that episode, but I just got to say, in my memory, it was such a flabbergasting moment. I mean, both of these meanings of American embassy and our attitude toward them had been spelled out with crystal clarity to both of us. Okay, I mean, we had articulated that we were not going to go near the American embassy, especially on the 4th of July. I mean, there, had, there actually had been talk in the news about what a prime target it was. And we were simultaneously making our best effort to get a room with a view of it. This is one thing I do remember, and I didn't write about it. There was something about this experience of, of waking up from this dream of incoherence and suddenly recognizing that both of us had been led to this spot by just an astounding level of logical blindness and shared, right, the fact that neither of us recognized that the American embassy is the American embassy led us both to become suddenly fairly superstitious. I certainly don't believe and didn't believe that there's any plan working that would have led us to our doom, but the fact that we had decided not to go there and yet wound up there was fairly creepy. It just actually seemed impossible that we were in that situation, and yet we were. All I can say is it had the character of a Twilight Zone episode, where we suddenly felt that the world and our own minds may not be what they seemed. In any case, we promptly checked out of the hotel to the absolute bewilderment of the staff, and a powerful wind of superstition blew us across the city to some other hotel that we managed to find. Back to the text. While behavioral and linguistic necessity demands that we seek coherence among our beliefs wherever we can, we know that total coherence, even in a maximally integrated brain, would be impossible to achieve. 
This becomes apparent the moment we imagine a person's beliefs recorded as a list of assertions, like, I am walking in the park. Parks generally have animals. Lions are animals. And so on. Each being a belief unto itself as well as a possible basis upon which to form further inferences, both good ones, I may soon see an animal, and bad ones, I may soon see a lion, and hence new beliefs about the world. If perfect coherence is to be had, each new belief must be checked against all others, and every combination thereof, for logical contradictions. But here we encounter a minor computational difficulty. The number of necessary comparisons grows exponentially as each new proposition is added to the list. How many beliefs could a perfect brain check for logical contradictions? The answer is surprising. Even if a computer were as large as the known universe, built of components no larger than protons, with switching speeds as fast as the speed of light, all laboring in parallel from the moment of the Big Bang up to the present, it would still be fighting to add belief number 300 to its list. What does this say about the possibility of our ever guaranteeing that our worldview is perfectly free from contradiction? It is not even a dream within a dream. And yet, given the demands of language and behavior, it remains true that we must strive for coherence wherever it is in doubt, because failure here is synonymous with a failure of either linguistic sense or behavioral possibility. Beliefs as representations of the world. For even the most basic knowledge of the world to be possible, Regularities in a nervous system must consistently mirror regularities in the environment. If a different assemblage of neurons in my brain fired whenever I saw a person's face, I would have no way to form a memory of him. His face could look like a face one moment and a toaster the next, and I would have no reason to be surprised by the inconsistency, for there would be nothing for a given pattern of neural activity to be consistent with. As Steven Pinker points out, it is only the orderly mirroring between a system that processes information, a brain or a computer, and the laws of logic or probability that explains, quote, how rationality can emerge from mindless physical process in the first place, end quote. Words are arranged in a systematic rule-based way, syntax, and beliefs are likewise, in that they must logically cohere, because both body and world are so arranged. Consider the statement, there is an apple and an orange in Jack's lunchbox. The syntactical and hence logical significance of the word and guarantees that anyone who believes this statement will also believe the following propositions. There is an apple in Jack's lunchbox, and there is an orange in Jack's lunchbox. This is not due to some magical property that syntax holds over the world. Rather, it is a simple consequence of the fact that we use words like and to mirror the orderly behavior of objects. Someone who will endorse the conjunction of two statements while denying them individually either does not understand the use of the word and or does not understand things like apples, oranges, and lunchboxes. It just so happens that we live in a universe in which if you put an apple and an orange in Jack's lunchbox, you will be able to pull out an apple, an orange, or both. There's a point at which the meanings of words, their syntactical relations, and rationality itself can no longer be divorced from the orderly behavior of objects in the world. As I say in an endnote here, there are exceptions here. Certain words and concepts run afoul of ordinary logic. And I say, for instance, one cannot put the shadow of an apple and the shadow of an orange in Jack's lunchbox, close the lid, and then expect to retrieve one or the other at the end of the day. That's just based on an understanding of what shadows are. They're not objects of the same sort. And I should also say that quantum mechanics, obviously, runs afoul of our intuitions here, and 
That is what is so hard and counterintuitive about it and why it resists a mapping onto our realistic and logical expectations of the world. Back to the text. Whatever beliefs are, none of us harbors an infinite number of them. While philosophers may doubt whether beliefs are the sort of thing that can be counted, it is clear that we have a finite amount of storage in our brains, a finite number of discrete memories, and a finite vocabulary that waxes and wanes somewhere well shy of 100,000 words. There is a distinction to be made, therefore, between beliefs that are causally active, i.e. those that we already have in our heads, and those that can be constructed on demand. If believing is anything like perceiving, it is obvious that our intuitions about how many of our beliefs are present within us at any given moment might be unreliable. Studies of change blindness, for instance, have revealed that we do not perceive nearly as much of the world as we think we do, since a large percentage of the visual scene can be suddenly altered without our noticing. Off text. Now, if you, if you haven't seen change blindness demonstrations, they're pretty phenomenal. So the demonstration runs this way. You, you'll, you'll show someone a, a slide, let's say a, a picture of a family picnicking in the park, and change it to another slide that is identical to the first, but for the fact that you have changed something like 20% of its visual properties, like removed a tree or removed a person or you know, put a buffalo in the scene. And it can take people an astonishingly long time to notice the difference between the two images. You know, once you see what has changed, you just you can't believe that it took you any time at all to notice it. Back to the text. An analogy with computer gaming also seems apropos. Current generations of computer games do not compute parts of their virtual world until a player makes a move that demands their existence. Perhaps many of our cognitive commitments are just like this. So I'm saying that, that we, we may not have the stable model of reality that we think we have. We may continue to compute things all the time and on the fly. And we do this perceptually, clearly. We're not seeing everything all the time that we, that we think we're seeing with our eyes open, pointed in the right direction, as change blindness demonstrates. And we may not believe things all the time the way we seem to, but construct beliefs on the fly much more often than we think we do. And there is a kind of confabulatory way we do generate our opinions about the world. You can notice this in various experiments, and you can notice this about yourself. You just start saying things, even on new topics. Think of what it's like to be asked a question that you have never been asked before. For instance, if I were to ask you, do you think human beings will ever outgrow violence entirely? Right Now, maybe you've thought about this before, maybe you haven't. I doubt anyone has asked you to answer that question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. You know, I ask you the question, now give me an answer. If you try this, I think it will be the rare person among you who will simply pause for a moment, reflect, and say, I don't know. Of course, it is a perfectly reasonable position. In fact, I think maybe the only reasonable position to take on that question, right? I certainly don't know. but. Most people ask that question, could answer it one of two ways, I think with real confidence. And they would begin to just form an answer. They would start talking 
And it would go something like this. It'd be, oh, oh, no, no, no. We're never going to outgrow violence because it's just so deeply rooted in us. There's always, we are apes. And unless we outgrow our humanity, unless we change ourselves fundamentally so that we're no longer human, the potential for violence will always be there. Well, that sounds pretty good. Okay, that's what I believe. Or we'll have to outgrow violence at some point because the power of our technology is only increasing. The ability for one person to destroy the lives of many others, even millions of others, is only increasing. And it's hard to see how that will ever change. So at a certain point, we will have to figure out how to cancel our violent impulses. And we will do this. It will be, at, at some point, the most important thing for us to do. The human capacity for violence will become literally insufferable at a certain point. Okay, that sounds pretty good, too. So you could just start talking, and if your internal bullshit detector doesn't go off, that can suffice to be your belief. Right now, did you harbor that belief, either one of them, before talking? Probably not. But the, the fact that they survive coincidence with all the things you do believe, the fact that you didn't say anything in either of those answers that contradicts something you know to be true, well, then it, that kind of confabulation will survive and pass as a belief that you have harbored about the world and perhaps now harbor going forward because you said as much. Okay, back to the text. Whether most of what we believe is always present within our minds, or whether it must be continually reconstructed, it seems that many beliefs must be freshly vetted before they can guide our behavior. This is demonstrated whenever we come to doubt a proposition that we previously believed. Just consider what it is like to forget the multiplication table. 12 times 7 equals... All of us have had moments when 84 just didn't sound quite right. At such times, we may be forced to perform some additional calculations before we can again be said to believe that 12 times 7 equals 84. Or consider what it is like to fall into doubt over a familiar person's name. Is his name really Jeff? Is that what I call him? It is clear that even very well-worn beliefs can occasionally fail to achieve credibility in the present. Such failures of truth-testing have important implications, to which we now turn. A matter of true and false. Imagine that you are having dinner in a restaurant with several old friends. You leave the table briefly to use the restroom, and upon your return, you hear one of your friends whisper, just be quiet, he can't know any of this. What are you to make of this statement? Everything turns on whether you believe that you are the he in question. If you are a woman, and therefore excluded by this choice of pronoun, you would probably feel nothing but curiosity. Upon retaking your seat, you might even whisper, who are you guys talking about? If you are a man, on the other hand, things have just gotten interesting. What secret could your friends be keeping from you? If your birthday is a few weeks away, you might assume that a surprise party has been planned in your honor. If not, more Shakespearean possibilities await your consideration. Given your prior cognitive commitments and the contextual cues in which the utterance was spoken, some credence-granting circuit inside your brain will begin to test a variety of possibilities. You will study your friends' faces. Are their expressions compatible with the more nefarious interpretations of this statement that are now occurring to you? Has one of your friends just confessed to sleeping with your wife? When could this have happened? There has always been a certain chemistry between them. Suffice it to say that whichever interpretation of these events becomes a matter of belief for you will have important personal and social consequences. 
At present, we have no understanding of what it means, at the level of the brain, to say that a person believes or disbelieves a given proposition. And yet it is upon this difference that all subsequent cognitive and behavioral commitments turn. And uh, going off text now, I would say that this has changed a little bit since I wrote that, in part because of the neuroimaging work I did to finish my PhD in neuroscience, as well as some subsequent work I did with my friend Jonas Kaplan, uh, which hopefully will soon be published. We know more about which regions of the brain are active when people believe and disbelieve various propositions. And I summarize the first of those studies in my book, The Moral Landscape. But there are regions of the ventromedial prefrontal cortex often associated with reward and self-reference, self-representation, that are more active when we judge something to be true. And in these studies, judging something to be false was associated with activity in the insula, which is often involved in more visceral rejection states, like feelings of disgust. So I, I still consider that work quite preliminary, but the believing brain is not entirely a black box anymore. And another graduate student in the lab at UCLA where I did that work, Pamela Douglas, came along a few years later and used a machine learning analysis on my data to see if she could detect whether or not people believed or disbelieved various propositions at the single statement level. So just training on half the experiment, she went into the other half of the data blind with a machine learning tool to see if she could discriminate whether people believed or disbelieved propositions. And she found that she could do that with 90% accuracy. So even in this very crude paradigm that was not at all designed to be able to detect individual instances of belief or disbelief, rather it was designed to compare all of the belief and disbelief trials in a statistically simpler way, she was able to, to detect belief and disbelief with 90% accuracy. So it was an interesting tweak on that experiment and certainly portends a future where we will have mind reading and lie detection technology that is reliable. I think there's no question about that. And whether you find that terrifying and Orwellian or a great relief certainly depends on your own beliefs about how that technology is likely to be used. Back to the text. To believe a proposition we must endorse and thereby become behaviorally susceptible to its representational content. There are good reasons to think that this process happens quite automatically, and indeed that the mere comprehension of an idea may be tantamount to believing it, if only for a moment. The Dutch philosopher Spinoza thought that belief and comprehension were identical, while disbelief required a subsequent act of rejection. Some very interesting work in psychology bears this out. And off text again, I should say we always found this to be true in our experiments as well, that disbelief took longer than belief, no matter how simple the proposition. You will be slower to judge 2 plus 2 equals 5 to be false than you will be to accept that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And this does suggest that spotting the error is an additional step, and that mere comprehension of a statement does at least provisionally entail its acceptance. So I think Spinoza was right on that point. Back to the text. 
it seems rather likely that understanding a proposition is analogous to perceiving an object in physical space. Our default setting may be to accept appearances as reality until they prove to be otherwise. This would explain why merely entertaining the possibility of a friend's betrayal may have set your heart racing a moment ago. Off text now, that this, this relates to what I just said about generating beliefs and opinions in real time when we just talk. There is a kind of confabulatory process here where until it sounds wrong, it sounds right. You are looking for errors in your own speech. And unless an alarm goes off, what you say is passing for what, in fact, you believe. And that can be true of a totally novel statement, which you have never made or thought in your life. And now there, there are well-characterized neurological conditions where people confabulate truly, which is to say that there is no more error detection going on. So they just say things confidently that are quite obviously untrue. And they're not noticing logical errors. They're not noticing factual impossibility. They're just talking. Out there in the world, among seemingly normal people, even politicians and famous scholars, you can detect a, a spectrum of propensity for confabulation. You can see people who are just bullshitting all the time and getting away with it because they're articulate or they're funny or they've trained their audiences not to care about their factual or logical errors. As I've said, someone like Donald Trump is the ultimate example of this. He can contradict himself in the span of a single paragraph and not seem to notice or care, even when it's pointed out to him. It really is tennis without the net. The amazing thing is that his supporters don't seem to care. But I digress. Back to the text. Whether belief formation is a passive or an active process, it is clear that we continuously monitor spoken utterances, both our own and those of others, for logical and factual errors. The failure to find such errors allows us to live by the logic of what would otherwise be empty phrases. Of course, even the change of a single word can mean the difference between complacence and death-defying feats. If your child comes to you in the middle of the night and says, Daddy, there's an elephant in the hall, you might escort him back to bed toting an imaginary gun. If he said, Daddy, there's a man in the hall, you would probably be inclined to carry a real one. There, I should say, I should probably change probably to might. The things I've said about guns in the intervening years has led me to believe that even in the most extreme circumstances, there are many among you who would not want to hold a gun under any of them. So you might be inclined to carry a real one. Faith and evidence. It does not require any special knowledge of psychology or neuroscience to observe that human beings are generally reluctant to change their minds. As many authors have noted, we are conservative in our beliefs in the sense that we do not add or subtract from our store of them without reason. Belief in the epistemic sense, that is, belief that aims at representing our knowledge about the world, requires that we believe a given proposition to be true, not merely that we wish it were so. Such a constraint upon our thinking is undoubtedly a good thing, since unrestrained wishful thinking would uncouple our beliefs from the regularities in the world that they purport to represent. Why is it wrong to believe a proposition to be true just because it might feel good to believe it? One need only linger over the meaning of the word because, Middle English, by and cause, to see the problem here. 
because suggests a causal connection between a proposition's being true and a person's believing that it is. This explains the value we generally place on evidence, because evidence is simply an account of the causal linkage between states of the world and our beliefs about them. For example, I believe Oswald shot Kennedy because I found his fingerprints on the gun, and because my cousin saw him do it, and my cousin doesn't lie. We can believe a proposition to be true only because something in our experience, or in our reasoning about the world, actually speaks to the truth of the proposition in question. Let's say that I believe that God exists, and some impertinent person asks me why. This question invites, indeed demands, an answer of the form, I believe that God exists because. I cannot say, however, I believe that God exists because it's prudent to do so, as Pascal would have us do. Of course, I can say this, but I cannot mean by the word believe what I mean when I say things like, I believe that water is really two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen because two centuries of physical experiments attest to this, or I believe that there is an oak in my yard because I can see it. Nor can I say things like, I believe in God because it makes me feel good. The fact that I would feel good if there were a God does not give me the slightest reason to believe that one exists. This is easily seen when we swap the existence of God for some other consoling proposition. Let's say that I want to believe that there's a diamond buried somewhere in my yard that's the size of a refrigerator. It's true that it would feel uncommonly good to believe this. But do I have any reason to believe that there is actually a diamond in my yard that is thousands of times larger than any yet discovered? No. Here we can see why Pascal's wager, Kierkegaard's leap of faith, and other epistemological Ponzi schemes won't do. To believe that God exists is to believe that I stand in some relation to his existence such that his existence is itself the reason for my belief. There must be some causal connection or appearance thereof between the fact in question and my acceptance of it. In this way, we can see that religious beliefs, to be beliefs about the way the world is, must be as evidentiary in spirit as any other. Off the text, that diamond in the backyard analogy is something that I used in several talks after I wrote the book, and I'm surprised I didn't describe it more here. I mean, the point I always made is that you just think of the kinds of things that religious apologists say in defense of their belief in God and map it onto this diamond in the yard analogy. Imagine hearing somebody say, you have no idea how much meaning this belief that there's a diamond in my backyard that's the size of a refrigerator gives me and my family. We spend every Sunday digging for it. It's an incredibly positive influence on our lives. That's quite a crazy claim to talk about the utility of this belief for one's life. Imagine someone saying, I wouldn't want to live in a universe where there wasn't a diamond in my backyard that's the size of a refrigerator. This is something you hear people say about God. Right? I wouldn't want to live in a universe where there wasn't a God. That passes for a sane utterance among religious believers. You can get on Oprah and talk that way, and she will laugh and smile and treat you like you're a genius. I also wrote more about Pascal's wager in the interim. Let me see if I can find that. This might have shown up in another book. Maybe it's in a letter to a Christian nation in some form, but it might be useful to just drive the point home here. This is an article entitled The Empty Wager that looks like it was in the Washington Post website at one point. I guess I wrote this after my debate with Rick Warren that I did for Newsweek, where both John Meacham and Rick Warren each made, as I say here, respectful reference to Pascal's wager. And then I write, as many readers will remember, 
Pascal suggested that religious believers are simply taking the wiser of two bets. If a believer is wrong about God, there's not much harm to him or anyone else. And if he is right, he wins eternal happiness. If an atheist is wrong, however, he's destined for hell. Put this way, atheism seems the very picture of reckless stupidity. But there are many questionable assumptions built into this famous wager. One is the notion that people do not pay a terrible price for religious faith. It seems worth remembering in this context just what sort of costs, great and small, we are incurring on account of religion. With destructive technology spreading throughout the world with 21st century efficiency, what is the social cost of millions of Muslims believing in the metaphysics of martyrdom? Who would like to put a price on the heartfelt religious differences that the Sunni and Shia are now expressing in Iraq with car bombs and power tools? What is the net effect of so many Jewish settlers believing that the creator of the universe promised them a patch of desert on the Mediterranean? What have been the psychological costs imposed by Christianity's anxiety about sex these last 70 generations? The current costs of religion are incalculable, and they are excruciating. While Pascal deserves his reputation as a brilliant mathematician, his wager was never more than a cute and false analogy. Like many cute ideas in philosophy, it is easily remembered and often repeated, and this has lent it an undeserved air of profundity. If the wager were valid, it could be used to justify any belief system, no matter how ludicrous, as a, quote, good bet. Muslims could use it to support the claim that Jesus was not divine. The Quran states that anyone who believes in the divinity of Jesus will wind up in hell. Buddhists could use it to support the doctrine of karma and rebirth. And the editors of Time magazine could use it to persuade the world that anyone who reads Newsweek is destined for a fiery damnation. But the greatest problem with the wager, and it is a problem that infects religious thinking generally, is its suggestion that a rational person can knowingly will himself to believe a proposition for which he has no evidence. A person can profess any creed he likes, of course, but to really believe something, he must also believe that the belief under consideration is true. To believe that there is a God, for instance, is to believe that you are not just fooling yourself. It is to believe that you stand in some relation to God's existence such that if he didn't exist, you wouldn't believe in him. How does Pascal's wager fit into this scheme? It doesn't. Actually, I want to reiterate that. This is an important point which neither I nor anyone else makes enough, right? So to believe that there is a God is to believe that you are not just fooling yourself. It is to believe that you stand in some relation to God's existence such that if he didn't exist, you wouldn't believe in him, right? It's to believe that your beliefs are in some way, tracking reality, even if it's only based on the authority of others, right? So I'm not a chemist. I haven't done the experiments that characterize the molecular structure of water, or if I did in chemistry class, I don't remember it. So I am basing my knowledge about the structure of water on an additional supposition that the world is such that it would be astonishing if my belief about the structure of water were as it is and water was not, in fact, two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. There has been too much work done in this area. Too much depends on our having gotten that part right. So if, in fact, I am wrong about the structure of water, the world itself has a lot of explaining to do. Right? Many things will have to shift. And given that they haven't shifted yet, I am extremely confident on this point. And any shift would have to, have to conserve all this data 
it will have to explain why it seemed water was this way for this long, right? So yes, I, I believe that even if I haven't done the experiment myself, I'm not going to do it today, I'm not going to do it tomorrow. I do stand in a place where I would not believe this about water, but for the fact that this is in fact true about water, right? I am, I am part of a system of vetting ideas and propositions. I'm part of a conversation that has now gone on for centuries among uncountable people who've made their best effort to understand what is going on around them. And this notion of believing something just to be safe, just in case it might be true, this does not fit into this scheme. That's exactly how you would generate beliefs that don't track reality at all. Then I go on to write, Beliefs are not like clothing. Comfort, utility, and attractiveness cannot be one's conscious criteria for acquiring them. It's true that people often believe things for bad reasons. Self-deception, wishful thinking, and a wide variety of other cognitive biases really do cloud our thinking. But bad reasons only tend to work when they are unrecognized. Pascal's wager suggests that a rational person can knowingly believe a proposition purely out of concern for his future gratification. I suspect no one ever acquires his religious beliefs this way. Pascal certainly didn't. But even if some people do, who could be so foolish as to think that such beliefs are likely to be true? Okay, so that's what I think about Pascal's wager. And that wasn't in the book. Maybe I should just relate this to what I just said about the, the confabulatory way that many of us, even most of us, generate some of our beliefs and opinions. So let's say you answer a question like the one I posed earlier about violence that you've never answered before. You've never thought about it before in those terms. And you find yourself answering it, and your answer sounds good enough to you, right? So can you really say that you are tacitly claiming to stand in some position such that if the claim weren't true, you wouldn't believe it? Well, perhaps not for the most cavalier sort of opinion. But if we continue to talk about it, if I pushed on your statement, let's say you took the second line here, you think we will end violence because it's going to become far too dangerous to let anyone be violent. We will figure out some way to cancel it. And if I said to you, well, do you really think that will ever be practically possible? What is it? You're, you're imagining the genetic engineering of our descendants such that they're incapable of violence? What if the capacity for violence is merely an expression of some other capacity that is essential to most of what we care about? And if you strip that out, you're left with people who have absolutely no creative will at all, right? Do you know that's not true? Well, if you find that question compelling, you, you'll be pushed into an area of, yeah, you know, I don't know. This is not something I am going to take a firm position on. And that's the way it is with, with many of the things we think. You, you put something out there, and it is at bottom provisional. It's not like the claim to know something, right? That you would bet a lot of money on it. That you, would, you couldn't imagine it not being true. And this is the kind of claim that religious people make about the existence of God or about the divine origin of Scripture. And it's the claim that scientists would make about the structure of water. These really are truth claims that we put a lot of store in. 
And we do this because we are tacitly assuming we haven't just successfully duped ourselves into believing them. Back to the end of faith. The moment we admit that our beliefs are attempts to represent states of the world, we see that they must stand in the right relation to the world to be valid. It should be clear that if a person believes in God because he has had certain spiritual experiences, or because the Bible makes so much sense, or because he trusts the authority of the church, he is playing the same game of justification that we all play when claiming to know the most ordinary facts. This is probably a conclusion that many religious believers will want to resist. But resistance is not only futile, it is incoherent. There is simply no other logical space for our beliefs about the world to occupy. As long as religious propositions purport to be about the way the world is, e.g., God can actually hear your prayers, if you take his name in vain, bad things will happen to you, etc., they must stand in relation to the world and to our other beliefs about it. It is only by being so situated that propositions of this sort can influence our subsequent thinking or behavior. As long as a person maintains that his beliefs represent an actual state of the world, visible or invisible, spiritual or mundane, he must believe that his beliefs are a consequence of the way the world is. This, by definition, leaves him vulnerable to new evidence. Indeed, if there were no conceivable changes in the world that could get a person to question his religious beliefs, this would prove that his beliefs were not predicated upon his taking any state of the world into account. He could not claim, therefore, to be representing the world at all. I think that's a sentence worth reiterating. If there is no conceivable change in the world that could get a person to question his religious beliefs, and again, this is the kind of thing that religious people claim is true about themselves, rather often, this would prove that his beliefs were not predicated upon his taking any state of the world into account. He could not claim, therefore, to be representing the world at all. Although many things can be said in criticism of religious faith, there is no discounting its power. Millions among us, even now, are quite willing to die for our unjustified beliefs, and millions more, it seems, are willing to kill for them. Those who are destined to suffer terribly throughout their lives, or upon the threshold of death, often find consolation in one unfounded proposition or another. Faith enables many of us to endure life's difficulties with an equanimity that would scarcely be conceivable in a world lit only by reason. Faith also appears to have direct physical consequences in cases where mere expectations, good or bad, can incline the body toward health or untimely death. And here I'm referencing the placebo and nocebo effect. The nocebo effect is the opposite of the placebo effect, where one's negative belief about a substance or process can lead to negative physical symptoms. Back to the text. But the fact that religious beliefs have a great influence on human life says nothing at all about their validity. For the paranoid, pursued by persecutory delusions, terror of the CIA may have great influence. But this does not mean that his phones are tapped. What is faith, then? Is it something other than belief? The Hebrew term, emunia, and apologies for the pronunciation there, I have no idea how to pronounce it, is alternately translated as to have faith, to believe, or to trust. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, retains the same meaning in the term pistoian. Again, my pronunciation is surely terrible. And this Greek equivalent is adopted in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 defines faith as, quote, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Read in the right way, this passage seems to render faith entirely self-justifying. Perhaps the very fact that one believes in something that has not yet come to pass, quote, things hoped for, or for which one has no evidence, 
quote, things not seen, constitutes evidence of its actuality, quote, assurance. Let's see how this works. I feel a certain rather thrilling conviction that Nicole Kidman is in love with me. As we have never met, my feeling is my only evidence of her infatuation. I reason thus. My feeling suggests that Nicole and I must have a special, even metaphysical, connection. Otherwise, how could I have this feeling in the first place? I decide to set up camp outside her house to make the necessary introductions. Clearly, this sort of faith is a tricky business. I hope the point isn't lost there. People reason in ways about faith, about their experience, about their feelings of meaning and significance, and what those signify in ways that are obviously delusional and scary and socially dysfunctional on any other topic. Back to the text. Throughout this book, I am criticizing faith in its ordinary scriptural sense, as belief in and life orientation toward certain historical and metaphysical propositions. The meaning of the term, both in the Bible and upon the lips of the faithful, seems to be entirely unambiguous. It is true that certain theologians and contemplatives have attempted to recast faith as a spiritual principle that transcends mere motivated credulity. Paul Tillich, in his Dynamics of Faith in 1957, rarefied the original import of the term out of existence, casting away what he called idolatrous faith, and indeed all equations between faith and belief. Surely other theologians have done likewise. Of course, anyone is free to redefine the term faith however he sees fit, and thereby bring it into conformity with some rational or mystical ideal. But this is not the faith that has animated the faithful for millennia. The faith that I am calling into question is precisely the gesture that Tillich himself decried, as, quote, an act of knowledge that has a low degree of evidence, end quote. My argument, after all, is aimed at the majority of the faithful in every religious tradition, not at Tillich's blameless parish of one. Despite the considerable exertions of men like Tillich, who have attempted to hide the serpent lurking at the foot of every altar, the truth is that religious faith is simply unjustified belief in matters of ultimate concern, specifically in propositions that promise some mechanism by which human life can be spared the ravages of time and death, Faith is what credulity becomes when it finally achieves escape velocity from the constraints of terrestrial discourse, constraints like reasonableness, internal coherence, civility, and candor. However far you feel you have fled the parish, even if you are just now adjusting the mirror on the Hubble Space Telescope, you are likely to be the product of a culture that has elevated belief in the absence of evidence to the highest place in the hierarchy of human virtues. Ignorance is the true coinage of this realm. Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed, John 20, 29. And every child is instructed that it is at very least an option, if not a sacred duty, to disregard the facts of this world out of deference to the God who lurks in his mother's and father's imaginations. But faith is an imposter. This can be readily seen in the way that all the extraordinary phenomenon of the religious life, a statue of the virgin weeps, a child casts his crutches to the ground, are seized upon by the faithful as confirmation of their faith. At these moments, religious believers appear like men and women in the desert of uncertainty, given a cool drink of data. There's no way around the fact that we crave justification for our core beliefs, and believe them only because we think such justification is, at the very least, in the offing. Is there a practicing Christian in the West who would be indifferent to the appearance of incontestable physical evidence that attested to the literal truth of the Gospels? Imagine if carbon dating of the Shroud of Turin had shown it to be as old as Easter Sunday, A.D. 29. Is there any doubt that this revelation would have occasioned a spectacle of awe, exultation, and zealous remission of sins throughout the Christian world? 
And I'm sure I say in an endnote here that the Shroud of Turin was carbon dated by three independent labs and found to be a medieval forgery. Back to the book. This is the very same faith that will not stoop to reason when it has no good reasons to believe. If a little support of evidence emerges, however, the faithful prove to be as attentive to data as the damned. This demonstrates that faith is nothing more than a willingness to await the evidence, be it the day of judgment or some other downpour of corroboration. It is the search for knowledge on the installment plan. Believe now, live an untestable hypothesis until your dying day, and you will discover that you were right. But in any other sphere of life, a belief is a check that everyone insists upon cashing this side of the grave. The engineer says the bridge will hold. The doctor says the infection is resistant to penicillin. These people have defeasible reasons for their claims about the way the world is. The mullah, the priest, and the rabbi do not. Nothing could change about this world, or about the world of their experience, that could demonstrate the falsity of many of their core beliefs. This proves that these beliefs are not born of any examination of the world or of the world of their experience. They are, in Karl Popper's sense, unfalsifiable. It appears that even the Holocaust did not lead most Jews to doubt the existence of an omnipotent and benevolent God. If having half your people systematically delivered to the furnace does not count as evidence against the notion that an all-powerful God is looking out for your interests, it seems reasonable to assume that nothing could. How does the mullah know that the Quran is the verbatim word of God? The only answer to be given in any language that does not make a mockery of the word no is he doesn't. A man's faith is just a subset of his beliefs about the world, beliefs about matters of ultimate concern that we as a culture have told him he need not justify in the present. It is time we recognize just how maladaptive this balkanization of our discourse has become. All pretensions to theological knowledge should now be seen from the perspective of a man who is just beginning his day on the 100th floor of the World Trade Center on the morning of September 11, 2001, only to find his meandering thoughts of family and friends of errands run and unrun, of coffee in need of sweetener, inexplicably usurped by a choice of terrible starkness and simplicity, between being burned alive by jet fuel or leaping 1,000 feet to the concrete below. In fact, we should take the perspective of thousands of such men, women, and children who were robbed of life far sooner than they had imagined possible, in absolute terror and confusion. The men who committed the atrocities of September 11th were certainly not cowards, as they were repeatedly described in the Western media, nor were they lunatics in any ordinary sense. They were men of faith, perfect faith, as it turns out. And this, it must finally be acknowledged, is a terrible thing to be. I am certain that such a summary dismissal of religious faith will seem callous to many readers, particularly those who have known its comforts at first hand. But the fact that unjustified beliefs can have a consoling influence on the human mind is no argument in their favor. If every physician told his terminally ill patients that they were destined for a complete recovery, this might also set many of their minds at ease, but at the expense of the truth. Why should we be concerned about the truth? This question awaits its Socrates. For our purposes, we need only observe that the truth is of paramount concern to the faithful themselves. Indeed, the truth of a given doctrine is the very object of their faith. The search for comfort at the expense of truth has never been a motive for religious belief since all creeds are chock-full of terrible proposals, which are no comfort to anyone, and which the faithful believe, despite the pain it causes them, for fear of leaving some dark corner of reality unacknowledged. And here I'm thinking about doctrines related to hell, for instance. 
people don't believe in hell because they find it consoling. They believe in hell because they think it's really there. They just have bad reasons for thinking it's there. But it's not comforting that many people you love but who don't believe the right things about God are going to spend eternity in hellfire. And the fear of falling into hell oneself, endured for a lifetime by many religious people, is not comforting. Back to the book. The faithful, in fact, hold truth in the highest esteem, and in this sense they are identical to most philosophers and scientists. People of faith claim nothing less than knowledge of sacred, redeeming, and metaphysical truths. Christ died for your sins. He's the Son of God. All human beings have souls that will be subject to judgment after death, etc. These are specific claims about the way the world is. It is only the notion that a doctrine is in accord with reality at large that renders a person's faith useful, redemptive, or indeed logically possible. For faith in a doctrine is faith in its truth. What else but the truth of a given teaching could convince its adherents of the illegitimacy of all others? Heretical doctrines are deemed so and accorded a healthy measure of disdain for no other reason than that they are presumed to be false. Thus, if a Christian made no tacit claims of knowledge with regard to the literal truth of Scripture, he would be just as much a Muslim, or a Jew, or an atheist, as a follower of Christ. If he were to discover, by some means that he acknowledged to be incontrovertible, that Christ had actually been born of sin and died like an animal, these revelations would surely deliver a death blow to his faith. The faithful have never been indifferent to the truth. And yet the principle of faith leaves them unequipped to distinguish truth from falsity in matters that most concern them. The faithful can be expected to behave just like their secular neighbors, which is to say more or less rationally, in their worldly affairs. When making important decisions, they tend to be as attentive to evidence and to its authentication as any unbeliever. While Jehovah's Witnesses refusing blood transfusions, or Christian scientists foregoing modern medicine altogether, may appear to be exceptions to this rule, they are not. Such people are merely acting rationally within the framework of their religious beliefs. After all, no mother who refuses medicine for her child on religious grounds believes that prayer is merely a consoling cultural practice. Rather, she believes that her ultimate salvation demands certain displays of confidence in the power and attentiveness of God. And this is an end toward which she is willing to pledge even the life of her child as collateral. Such apparently unreasonable behavior is often in the service of reason since it aims at the empirical authentication of religious doctrine. In fact, even the most extreme expressions of faith are often perfectly rational, given the requisite beliefs. Take the snake-dancing Pentecostals as the most colorful example. In an effort to demonstrate both their faith in the literal word of the Bible, in this case Mark chapter 16, verse 18, and its truth, they, quote, take up serpents, various species of rattlesnake, and, quote, drink any deadly thing, generally strychnine, and test prophecy, quote, it shall not hurt them, to their heart's content. Some of them die in the process, of course, as did their founder, George Hensley, of Snakebite in 1955, proof we can be sure not of the weakness of their faith, but of the occasional efficacy of rattlesnake venom and strychnine as poisons. Which beliefs one takes to be foundational will dictate what seems reasonable at any given moment. When the members of the Heaven's Gate cult failed to spot the spacecraft they knew must be trailing the comet Hale-Bopp, they returned the $4,000 telescope they had bought for this purpose, believing it to be defective. I'll just say that in one of my earlier podcasts, I spent about, I don't know, half hour or so contemplating the Heaven's Gate cult after having watched 
their exit interviews and read much more of their material than I had before writing this book. Just a mind-boggling phenomenon. And if you're interested, I would point you to that podcast, the title of which is Through the Eyes of a Cult. That was podcast number seven. Where faith really pays its dividends, however, is in the conviction that the future will be better than the past, or at least not worse. Consider the celebrated opinion of Julian of Norwich, who lived between 1342 and 1413, who distilled the message of the Gospels in this memorable sentence, All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. The allure of most religious doctrines is nothing more sublime or inscrutable than this. Things will turn out well in the end. Faith is offered as a means by which the truth of this proposition can be savored in the present and secured in the future. It is, I think, indisputable that the actual existence of such a mechanism, the fact that uttering a few words and eating a cracker is an effective means of redemption, the certainty that God is watching, listening, and waiting to bestow his blessings upon one and all, in short, the literal correspondence of doctrine with reality itself, is of sole importance to the faithful. And now I have a quotation from a work of history describing something that happened in the Middle Ages. Quote, The amazing pestilence reached Paris that June of 1348, and it was to afflict the city for a year and a half. King Philip asked the medical faculty of the University of Paris for an explanation of the disaster. The professors reported that a disturbance in the skies had caused the sun to overheat the oceans near India, and the waters had begun to give off noxious vapors. The medical faculty offered a variety of remedies. Broth would help, for example, if seasoned with ground pepper, ginger, and cloves. Poultry, waterfowl, young pork, and fatty meat in general were to be avoided. Olive oil could be fatal. Bathing was dangerous. But enemas could be helpful. Quote, Men must preserve chastity, the doctors warned, if they value their lives. The king still worried about the divine wrath. He issued an edict against blasphemy. For the first offense, the blasphemer's lip would be cut off. A second offense would cost him the other lip. A third, the tongue. The town authorities reacted with a series of stern measures to halt the spreading panic. They ordered the tolling of the bells to cease. They outlawed the wearing of black clothing. They forbade the gathering of more than two people at a funeral, or any display of grief in public. And to placate the angry God who had brought this affliction, they banned all work afternoon on Saturdays, all gambling and swearing, and they demanded that everyone living in sin get married immediately. Lee Muesis, an abbot of Tournai, recorded happily that the number of marriages increased considerably, profanity was no longer heard, and gambling declined so much that the makers of dice turned to making rosaries. He also recorded that in this newly virtuous place, 25,000 citizens died of the plague and were buried in large pits on the outskirts of the town. End quote. Where did the religious beliefs of these people leave off and their worldly beliefs begin? Can there be any doubt that the beleaguered Christians of the 14th century were longing for knowledge, that is, beliefs that are both true and valid, about the plague, about its cause and mode of transmission, and hoping thereby to find an effective means by which to combat it? Was their reliance upon the tenets of faith enforced by anything but the starkest ignorance? If it had been known, for instance, that this pestilence was being delivered by merchant ships, that rats were climbing ashore from every hold, and that upon each rat were legions of fleas carrying the plague bacillus, would the faithful have thought their energies best spent cutting the tongues out of blasphemers, silencing bells, 
dressing in bright colors, and making liberal use of enemas? A sure way to win an argument with these unhappy people would have been with penicillin, delivered not from a land where other, quote, cultural perspectives hold sway, but from higher up on the slopes of the real. Faith and madness. We have seen that our beliefs are tightly coupled to the structure of language and to the apparent structure of the world. Our, quote, freedom of belief, if it exists at all, is minimal. Is a person really free to believe a proposition for which he has no evidence? No. Evidence, whether sensory or logical, is the only thing that suggests a given belief is really about the world in the first place. We have names for people who have many beliefs for which there is no rational justification. When their beliefs are extremely common, we call them religious. Otherwise, they are likely to be called mad, psychotic, or delusional. Most people of faith are perfectly sane, of course, even those who commit atrocities on account of their beliefs. But what is the difference between a man who believes that God will reward him with 72 virgins if he kills a score of Jewish teenagers, and one who believes that creatures from Alpha Centauri are beaming him messages of world peace through his hairdryer? There is a difference, to be sure, but it is not one that places religious faith in a flattering light. It takes a certain kind of person to believe what no one else believes, to be ruled by ideas for which you have no evidence, and which therefore cannot be justified in conversation with other human beings is generally a sign that something is seriously wrong with your mind. Clearly, there is sanity in numbers, and yet it is merely an accident of history that it is considered normal in our society to believe that the creator of the universe can hear your thoughts, while it is demonstrative of mental illness to believe that he's communicating with you by having the rain tap in Morse code on your bedroom window. And so while religious people are not generally mad, their core beliefs absolutely are. This is not surprising since most religions have merely canonized a few products of ancient ignorance and derangement and passed them down to us as though they were primordial truths. This leaves billions of us believing what no sane person could believe on his own. In fact, it is difficult to imagine a set of beliefs more suggestive of mental illness than those that lie at the heart of many of our religious traditions. Consider one of the cornerstones of the Catholic faith, and this is the Apostles' Creed. I likewise profess that in the Mass a true, proper, and propitiatory sacrifice is offered to God on behalf of the living and the dead, and that the body and the blood, together with the soul and the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, is truly, really, and substantially present in the most holy sacrament of the Eucharist. And there is a change of the whole substance of the bread into the body, and of the whole substance of the wine into blood. And this change the Catholic Mass calls transubstantiation. I also profess that the whole and entire Christ and a true sacrament is received under each separate species. End quote. Jesus Christ, who, as it turns out, was born of a virgin, cheated death, and rose bodily into the heavens, can now be eaten in the form of a cracker. A few Latin words spoken over your favorite burgundy, and you can drink his blood as well. Is there any doubt that a lone subscriber to these beliefs would be considered mad? Rather, is there any doubt that he would be mad? The danger of religious faith is that it allows otherwise normal human beings to reap the fruits of madness and consider them holy, because each new generation of children is taught that religious propositions need not be justified in the way that all others must. Civilization is still besieged by the armies of the preposterous. We are, even now, killing ourselves over ancient literature. Who could have thought that something so tragically absurd could be possible? What should we believe? We believe most of what we believe about the world because others have told us to. 
Reliance upon the authority of experts and upon the testimony of ordinary people is the stuff of which worldviews are made. In fact, the more educated we become, the more our beliefs come to us at second hand. A person who believes only those propositions for which he can provide full sensory or theoretical justification will know almost nothing about the world. That is, if he is not swiftly killed by his own ignorance. How do you know that falling from a great height is hazardous to your health? Unless you have witnessed someone die in this way, you have adopted this belief on the authority of others. This is not a problem. Life is too short and the world too complex for any of us to go it alone in epistemological terms. We are ever reliant on the intelligence and accuracy, if not the kindness, of strangers. This does not suggest, however, that all forms of authority are valid, nor does it suggest that even the best authorities will always prove reliable. There are good arguments and bad ones, precise observations and imprecise ones, and each of us has to be the final judge of whether or not it's reasonable to adopt a given belief about the world. Consider the following sources of information. 1. The anchor man on the evening news says that a large fire is burning in the state of Colorado. 100,000 acres have burned, and the fire is still completely uncontained. 2. Biologists say that DNA is the molecular basis of sexual reproduction. Each of us resembles our parents because we inherit a complement of their DNA. Each of us has arms and legs because our DNA coded for the proteins that produce them during our early development. 3. The Pope says that Jesus was born of a virgin and resurrected bodily after death. He is the Son of God, who created the universe in six days. If you believe this, you will go to heaven after death. If you don't, you will go to hell, where you will suffer for eternity. I should probably say as a point of clarification here that Catholics are fairly circumspect in making claims now about the afterlife. I haven't heard many Catholics or any recent Pope talk about hell. can't say I have been listening all that much, but it seems to me that they are different from evangelicals, say, in this regard. And so I would expect many Catholics, though perhaps not all, to recoil from this particular summary of church teaching, but that's actually irrelevant in the present context. Back to the book. What is the difference between these forms of testimony? Why isn't every, quote, expert opinion equally worthy of our respect? Given our analysis thus far, it should not be difficult to grant authority to one and two while disregarding three. Proposition one. Why do we find the news story about the fire in Colorado persuasive? It could be a hoax. But what about those televised images of hillsides engorged by flame and of planes dropping fire retardant? Maybe there is a fire, but it's in a different state. Perhaps it's really Texas that is burning. Is it reasonable to entertain such possibilities? No. Why not? Here's where the phrase common sense begins to earn its keep. Given our beliefs about the human mind, the success of our widespread collaboration with other human beings, and the degree to which we all rely on the news, it is scarcely conceivable that a respected television network and a highly paid anchorman are perpetrating a hoax, or that thousands of firefighters, newsmen, and terrified homeowners have mistaken Texas for Colorado. Implicit in such common-sense judgments lurks an understanding of the causal connections between various processes in the world, the likelihood of different outcomes, and the vested interests, or lack thereof, of those whose testimony we are considering. What would a professional news anchor stand to gain from lying about a fire in Colorado? We need not go into the details here. If the anchor on the evening news says that there is a fire in Colorado, and then shows us images of burning trees, 
we can be reasonably sure that there really is a fire in Colorado. Proposition 2. What about the, quote, truths of science? Are they true? Much has been written about the inherent provisionality of scientific theories. Karl Popper has told us that we never prove a theory right, we merely fail to prove it wrong. Thomas Kuhn has told us that scientific theories undergo wholesale revision with each generation, and therefore do not converge on the truth. There's no telling which of our current theories will be proved wrong tomorrow. So how much confidence can we have in them? Many unwary consumers of these ideas have concluded that science is just another area of human discourse, and as such is no more anchored to the facts of this world than literature or religion are. All truths are up for grabs. But all spheres of discourse are not on the same footing, for the simple reason that not all spheres of discourse seek the same footing, or any footing whatsoever. Science is science because it represents our most committed effort to verify that our statements about the world are true, or at least not false. We do this by observation and experiment within the context of a theory. To say that a given scientific theory may be wrong is not to say that it may be wrong in its every particular, or that any other theory stands an equal chance of being right. What are the chances that DNA is not the basis for genetic inheritance? Well, if it isn't, Mother Nature sure has a lot of explaining to do. She must explain the results of 50 years of experimentation, which have demonstrated reliable correlations between genotype and phenotype, including the reproducible effects of specific genetic mutations. Any account of inheritance that's going to supersede the present assumptions of molecular biology will have to account for the ocean of data that now conforms to these assumptions. What are the chances that we will one day discover that DNA has absolutely nothing to do with inheritance? They are effectively zero. Proposition 3. Can we rely on the authority of the Pope? Millions of Catholics do, of course. He is, in fact, infallible in matters of faith and morality. Can we really say that Catholics are wrong to believe that the Pope knows whereof he speaks? We surely can. We know that no evidence would be sufficient to authenticate many of the Pope's core beliefs. How could anyone born in the 20th century come to know that Jesus was actually born of a virgin? What process of ratiocination, mystical or otherwise, will deliver the necessary facts about a Galilean woman's sexual history, facts that run entirely counter to the well-known facts of human biology? There is no such process. Even a time machine would not help us, unless we were willing to keep watch over Mary 24 hours a day for the months surrounding the probable time of Jesus' conception. Visionary experiences, in and of themselves, can never be sufficient to answer questions of historical fact. Let's say the Pope had a dream about Jesus, and Jesus came to him looking fresh from da Vinci's brush. The Pope would not even be in a position to say that the Jesus of his dream looked like the real Jesus. The Pope's infallibility, no matter how many dreams and visions he may have had, does not even extend to making a judgment about whether the historical Jesus wore a beard, let alone whether he was really the Son of God born of a virgin, or able to raise the dead. These are just not the kinds of propositions that spiritual experience can authenticate. Of course, we could imagine a scenario in which we would give credence to the Pope's visions, or to our own. If Jesus came saying things like, the Vatican Library has exactly 37,226 books, and he turned out to be right, we would then begin to feel that we were at the very least in dialogue with someone who had something to say about the way the world is. Given a sufficient number of verifiable statements, plucked from the ethers of papal vision, we could begin speaking seriously about any further claims Jesus might make. The point is that his authority would be derived in the only way that such authority ever is, by making claims about the world that can be corroborated by further observation. As far as Proposition 3 is concerned, 
it is quite obvious that the Pope has nothing to go on but the Bible itself. This document is not a sufficient justification for his beliefs, given the standards of evidence that prevailed at the time of its composition. What about our much-championed freedom of religious belief? It is no different from our freedoms of journalistic and biological belief. And anyone who believes that the media are perpetrating a great fire conspiracy, or that molecular biology is just a theory that may prove totally wrong, has merely exercised his freedom to be thought a fool. Religious unreason should acquire an even greater stigma in our discourse, given that it remains among the principal causes of armed conflict in our world. Before you can get to the end of this paragraph, another person will probably die because of what someone else believes about God. Perhaps it is time we demanded that our fellow human beings had better reasons for maintaining their religious differences, if such reasons even exist. We must begin speaking freely about what is really in these holy books of ours, beyond the timid heterodoxies of modernity, the gay and lesbian ministers, the Muslim clerics who have lost their taste for public amputations, or the Sunday churchgoers who have never read their Bibles quite through. A close study of these books, and of history, demonstrates that there is no act of cruelty so appalling that it cannot be justified, or even mandated, by recourse to their pages. It is only by the most acrobatic avoidance of passages whose canonicity has never been in doubt that we can escape murdering one another outright for the glory of God. Bertrand Russell had it right when he made the following observation, quote, The Spaniards in Mexico and Peru used to baptize Indian infants and then immediately dash their brains out. By this means, they secured these infants went to heaven. No Orthodox Christian can find any logical reason for condemning their action, although all nowadays do so. In countless ways, the doctrine of personal immortality in its Christian form has had disastrous effects upon morals. End quote. It is true that there are millions of people whose faith moves them to perform extraordinary acts of self-sacrifice for the benefits of others. The help rendered to the poor by Christian missionaries in the developing world demonstrates that religious ideas can lead to actions that are both beautiful and necessary. But there are far better reasons for self-sacrifice than those that religion provides. The fact that faith has motivated many people to do good things does not suggest that faith itself is a necessary or even good motivation for goodness. It can be quite possible, even reasonable, to risk one's life to save others without believing any incredible ideas about the nature of the universe. And now, as an aside, I would say that I tend to make this point by simply saying that religion gives people bad reasons to be good, where good reasons are available. Back to the text. By contrast, the most monstrous crimes against humanity have invariably been inspired by unjustified belief. This is nearly a truism. Genocidal projects tend not to reflect the rationality of their perpetrators simply because there are no good reasons to kill peaceful people indiscriminately. Even where such crimes have been secular, they have required the egregious credulity of entire societies to be brought off. Consider the millions of people who were killed by Stalin and Mao. Although these tyrants paid lip service to rationality, communism was little more than a political religion. At the heart of its apparatus of repression and terror lurked a rigid ideology to which generations of men and women were sacrificed. Even though their beliefs did not reach beyond this world, they were both cultic and irrational. To cite only one example, the dogmatic embrace of Lysenko's, quote, socialist biology, as distinguished from the capitalist biology of Mendel and Darwin, helped pave the way for tens of millions of deaths from famine in the Soviet Union and China in the first part of the 20th century. And I'll say as an aside, this point about communism and 
I don't say it here, but obviously the national socialism of the Third Reich being political religions, you know, sharing all that is wrong with religion apart from the otherworldliness, the cult of personality, the dogmatism, the in-group, out-group thinking, the subordination of individual ethics and freedom to the group. This point I made clearly here in my first book, but obviously the most common retort to atheism that one hears is that the greatest crimes of the 20th century were perpetrated by atheists. This is just a completely empty charge, but you find even smart, well-educated people making it from time to time. I think I say, I don't know if I say it here, but I've certainly said it since, there is no society in human history that ever suffered because its citizens became too reasonable, too interested in evidence, too sensitive to the weakness of a bad argument, too skeptical in the face of preposterous and unfounded claims. That is the basis of atheism. That is the basis of science. That is the only attitude toward intellectual life that transcends culture and the mere accidents of birth by definition. And that is not what brought us Stalinism. That's not what is defining the lives of the people living in North Korea right now. No, North Korea is a religious cult in every respect beyond making claims about the afterlife. Okay, it even includes beliefs in certain miracles performed by the dear leader. So to attribute that to atheism, as it would seem a majority of religious believers do, is just a totally bankrupt and dishonest move. Back to the text. In the next chapter, we will examine two of the darkest episodes in the history of faith, the Inquisition and the Holocaust. I have chosen the former as a case study because there is no other instance in which so many ordinary men and women have been so deranged by their beliefs about God. Nowhere else has the subversion of reason been so complete or its consequences so terrible. The Holocaust is relevant here because it is generally considered to have been an entirely secular phenomenon. It was not. The anti-Semitism that built the crematoria brick by brick and that still thrives today comes to us by way of Christian theology. Knowingly or not, the Nazis were agents of religion. And no doubt I unpack that final statement more in the next chapter. I am not claiming that the Nazis were motivated by religion in general. I'm claiming that anti-Semitism is entirely the product of religion, historically. The definition of Jews as Jews is the result of religion. But I go into that in more detail in the next chapter. So that was chapter two of The End of Faith. As always, if you're finding this podcast useful, you can support it at samharris.org forward slash support. As I said at the top here, we're now going ad-free on the Waking Up podcast. So you are my only sponsor, and I am honored that you are listening. Until next time. <laughs>